this is a spoiler. You can't listen you know. to this and not have spoilers. Oh, we're live. <laughs> no way. Now we know the other side is the same as our side. <laughs> Wait, but there must be some difference. What's the change? How has time passed? These issues and more to the lighthouse deals with. Um, that, that you can start then. <laughs> that, um, why, don't you, why don't you do a, a summary of this incredible book? Oh, me summarize. Well, um, yeah, all right. Uh, so we have Laura, Daniel, Dan just at the top. It's so stream of consciousness, though. This is like Ulysses. This is like uh, Don DeLillo whenever we read The Body Artist, that that kind of environment of the mind also in the landscape. So, I mean, it's just a day, right? Um, and they're, this is a family living in I'm not really sure where. I, I, I can definitely put in that um, based on St. Ives in Cornwall, England, because that's where she always vacationed with her family. And I read up a little about it, and she did base this book on that area. It's interesting, then, that there's the family, too, because, I mean, for me, the central figure was Miss Ramsey and what was in her mind and her relationship with her husband, who, at the very beginning, says something to the effect of, we're not going to the lighthouse, and his pessimism jades the entire family. It's so that Miss Ramsey feels the acuteness of, all of their five children, uh, Andrew, Prue, Pam, anyway, and just dashes some of their hopes, James, and, and she can't stand it. And you see through her eyes as she moves through her day, interacting with the local atheist, Charles Tansley, uh, and, you know, William Banks, who's lost his wife. And it's all threaded through this, at least for the first section, uh, this idea that there is a dinner coming and bringing people together and Miss Ramsey's going to do that. And everybody observes each other's interactions, the little grimaces or the moments in between. You know, just to kind of continue the overview, uh -huh. um, you know, there's um, so right. They have the uh, the dinner. Right. And, you know, basically then it goes into another kind of section of the book where. It's like Wolf is just describing how the house is deteriorating over many years when they're not using it. Uh, Mrs. Ramsey dies in the meantime. A couple people die. Um, the deaths are just described in a summer, in like a kind of sum summary kind of way without actually describing the scene. She's just focusing on the house deteriorating. Um, and then it comes back for a kind of final third section where, you know, after many years, the remnants of the family, some of the remnants of the family come back to the house and they finally have a trip to the lighthouse that they had been talking about like 10 years earlier. Uh, and, um, you know, just to kind of go back, one of the people that was in the first section was a painter called Lily Brasco, was her name? And, uh, you know, she's there too, a poet, their poet friend, uh, Carmichael, is, is um is there in the first section. He's there too. So it's kind of like getting the gang back together and going back to the house and 
sort of like the, the MacGuffin from the first section is kind of completed in the in the third section. Couple other characters that you know, James uh kind of the kid of theirs that gets the most focus, it seems like. Um he's uh the one who is all excited about going to the lighthouse at the beginning. Um and then later on in the book, kind of ironically, he doesn't want to go to the lighthouse uh, later on. He has really kind of a difficult relationship with his father throughout the book. There's, uh, who's the other person? Cam is the other person who's, right. who's there at the end, right? Um, right. Yeah, there's, there's a bunch of children. I lose track of them to some extent. I think True is the one who dies in childbirth. Yes. Right, in the, in the time passes. Andrew who died in the war. Yeah, and Andrew who died in the war, right. But even, I think that, does that sound like a, they, oh yeah, right, and there's those two people who get married, right. Um, um or get engaged at least. Minnie, or whatever her name is. Yeah. Paul? Mm-hmm. Right. It's a little bit like Ulysses in that, like, there's a focus on one day, but then unlike Ulysses, there's a big jump, right, in time. So I thought that was an interesting thing, right? Like, it's almost, you know, like, novels usually have, like, a steady progression, right? Whereas this has, like, a heavy, 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 super heavy focus on, like, one day, right? And then just, like, leaves the narrative time completely and barely in human time at all during, during the time passes section. I mean, I wonder um, what that's saying about time. Yeah. There's a lot of comments in the book about sort of what objects are without us. I think that's actually what the, the philosopher dad is writing about, and I feel like the novel's trying to somehow capture that sort of thing. Especially that middle section. Yeah. Which middle section? You mean... When? The section where the house is kind of empty and the two maids are just kind of going through and it's showing um, the house and all of the items in it, you know, basically outside of human attention and just what they are without... The, the family there to interact with them. It's just all kind of dried and, you know, just empty and absent and uh, just kind of nature's reclaiming parts of the house. And, you know, it's, it's totally different from the kind of vivacious first section where everything that, is. Is, that, is she saying that nothing that, okay, I, I don't mean to get totally weird here, but is she saying then that, those things didn't really exist because the people weren't there. I I took it more like um okay you know so there's a part in the beginning of that second section where she's talking about um the be I mean it's to dive right in but <clears throat> she talks about how you know in in response to Andrew's death in the war and the others who have died um a walk down to the beach couldn't be what it was before you know the family or the people who had who had witnessed these people who they had cared about and lost now had to acknowledge that going down to um, kind of commune with nature reflected back not only beauty, but also the indifference of nature. And I thought that whole section with the house was kind of um, that blown out wide, like it was to show that, um, you know, things ultimately go on without us in our perspective and our perceptions imbue them with whatever meaning or, you know, significance they might have in relation to us. But, um, 
you know, even without us, nature exists and reclaims what was once its. Isn't that a big philosophical question <laughs> that's on the history of philosophy? Sure. Do these things exist, you know, outside of our perception of them? Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, it's one, I'm wondering if that's what she was saying in a way. I mean, I, this is just another issue, with, you know, that's part of this whole discussion of this book. But I'm just, I'm just jumping on what you're saying. That's all. But yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, I have to say that section where she writes about the, the house and, um, you know, when no one's been there for many years and, and it's quality. And I mean, it was, first of all, I thought it was beautifully written. And I, I just was like, um, it just struck me that, you know, those things, kind of died, you know, when the people weren't there. And then I thought, well, were they ever really there? Anyway, I know I'm getting crazy. <laughs> no, I just wanted to add a passage from that section. On my edition, it's page 151. It's just two sentences in to the seventh part uh, of this house section we're talking about where the house is going through decay. And th this is a listening. Had there been anyone to listen? From the upper rooms of the empty house, only gigantic chaos could have been heard tumbling and tossing as the winds and waves disported themselves. And then it goes on, night and day, month and year ran shapelessly together in idiot games until it seemed as if the universe were battling and tumbling in brute confusion and wanton lust aimlessly by itself. In spring, the garden urns casually filled with windborn plants. But the stillness and the brightness of the day were as strange as the chaos and the tumult of night, with the trees standing there and the flowers standing there, looking before them, looking up, yet beholding nothing, eyeless, and so terrible. Like, I, I think it shows this shape of everything running together and the lack of witness and saying through something that it's looking up and looking up, but it, it can't, and, and that, that eyelessness is itself something, if you can behold it, a terrible thing. So she brings you back into this world of the emotional sided by starting off something like, you know, listening, if there were anyone to listen, and then imagining through that mind's eye this other world. Um, reminds me of Don Delilo and what I like between them and what they do there. I thought that was a beautifully written section. Yeah, I think, I think that she's not quite as interested in the question of, like, does it exist when there's, you know, no one looking at it or kind of like a bar, you know, like a Barclay kind of thing. I think it's more like a, you know, we kind of attach emotional, you know, we have emotions about these objects and these places and stuff like that. But, you know, in reality, they're just parts of the universe that are subject to the same sort of physical forces as everything else. I mean, the, the line that kind of gets me was, um, I forget who made who made it. Maybe the the dad about how Shakespeare isn't going to outlast the rock that you kick with your foot just just now, right? Mm -hmm. um, I feel like that's kind of you see that like in a microcosm kind of way in the house, um, and I guess in the family. I mean, there's a real strong sense of you know the how impermanent things are. Um, and sort of like what do you, and the, you know, which kind of raises the question of what do you do in, 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 um, in light of that impermanence? Like, especially because, you know, I, religion doesn't seem to 
provide a a good answer. Yeah, well, there's there's kind of <clears throat> both. I, I think thinking about Laura's point, isn't there kind of a way in which that you get from this novel that every perception is kind of its own thing? It's never going to. I mean, it it is the thing for us anyway, and it's never going to exist again um, because it's it's a relationship, right? And so that relationship is specific to time and to perspective and to whatever the object is, but it's always not just the object. It's always the object in relation to. So there is a sense then that it's like all existing only once, you know, in the turn of your head or, you know, a a different mood or having come subsequent to whatever comment was just made is what constructs every particular experience. And it's always individual well yeah i mean like there's this line again i'm in the kindle edition i don't know where the hell i am i'm 67 percent into this book so i can't tell you where it is uh, anyway the ha- it says here the house was left the house was deserted it was left like a shell on a sand hill to fill with dry salt grains now that life had left it so there's that question of the relationship between the life and the object yeah, I, I agree with that assessment. I think like the first part of the book was obviously a, a specific moment in time, and then time passes, or that middle part I think it was called, was sort of a, a pondering on time itself. And then the third part, when they tried to reach that lighthouse again, I think you know even though they tried to copy what they wanted to do at that moment in time at the beginning, it was ultimately a failure. They they couldn't do it because it's a perception, and that moment of the time is specific to like someone said, the relationships at that time, a very specific set of circumstances. Yeah. You're saying when they went to the lighthouse in the third part versus the desire to go to the lighthouse in the first part. Yeah, they tried to regain a moment of time, and it obviously didn't work. <laughs> well, in theory, you can't do that. I mean, you know, even if that's what she's showing, we can even think about that objectively. How can you capture a moment that is past? Of course, that depends on your relationship and your theory about time. But, yeah, I mean, you can't do that. This is also like the flip side of that, interestingly to me, I guess, that we can't totally remove the present from the past either. You know, we can't recreate it, but we can't get memories out of, we can't scrub them out of the context of what we experience in the present. That's one of the things that's really interesting about the Mrs. Ramsey section in the beginning of the book to me is that the present and the past and the future all bound up in like how she's looking at her children and how, what she's thinking about when she sees them and how that then just reflects back and affects her mood at the moment. You mean in terms of the moment of her relationship with that moment in time? or Well, in, in what she's experiencing of them and who they are and what that makes her, I mean, who, who she is because she's having that experience at the moment. It's like you want to you bracket off any particular thing as that one thing, but you can't because it all runs in together. You know, your meat and your potatoes are mixed. You know, you're your kids are who you are and you're who they are. And the book on the shelf is part of that too, when you're looking at it. And as you shift your attention, it's like, it all runs together, right? There was this a uh, little bit in, uh, this is, I think section 17 of that window passage where Miss Ramsey's having, I think one of these things, she's at dinner with her family and she's ladling out the soup or whatever serving dinner. And she's also thinking at the same time. And it's a really good passage. It's all come to an end. She thought, well, they came in one after another. Charles Tansley said, there, please, she said, Augustus Carmichael, and sat down. 
And meanwhile, she waited passively for someone to answer her for something to happen. But this is not a thing she thought ladling out soup that one says. You know, she comes to, like, it's all come to an end. This horrible thought in the middle of shelling out soup. And then she just reproaches herself and thinking mm-hmm. that she can't talk about that in the context of just dinner with people coming and sitting down and formal introductions and wanting to mate them with other people at present and you know, pushing marriage for couples. You know that's what happens all the time. That's what oh, Absolutely. When I was reading this, I was like, geez, this is what happens all the time. You know, this is what people are thinking when they're getting for dinner or going out to the restaurant or meeting. Yeah, or whatever. totally. It was shocking to me that she, she got it. And I was like, wow. Yeah, that, that dinner is an interesting thing because everyone seems to get depressed all of a sudden. Oh. Like they've been waiting. For, you know, it's like they've been waiting for it all day. It's, everyone knows, like, okay, this is the time to, you know, have our big moment together or whatever. And, you know, the moment comes and everyone's feeling weirdly philosophical or something about you know about um i don't know like they're having difficulty speaking i seem to remember that lily at one point thinks oh at at this point it manners to like pretend as a woman i'm supposed to pretend like i'm interested in what this guy is saying right well that's also at the very end section where she's struggling with herself to give sympathy to mr ramsey who had you know just lost his wife and son and daughter and you know he's trying it's almost comical she's trying to paint and he just comes up and kind of like groans yeah he's just seeking desperately some kind of sympathy i guess she's able to find some sympathy well it was the boot um his boots uh she uh right. noticed and, and, and said oh what nice boots and then got yeah. upset with herself that in all of this he only needed a human connection and she could just say boots but then he got really excited and was like yeah. Yeah, look at the, the bend of them you know like most made out of the you know leather and cardboard or cardboards instead of leather but these are the good thing and then they yeah. had a thing and, she, and then her eyes like filled with tears and she was you know just excited like overwrought with sympathy through the boots he's quite the character and at the end of the first part and this this makes an interesting comment on mrs ramsey even though she's this connecting figure always trying to set people up and seems like this loving you know mother writ large type figure She'll never tell Mr. Ramsey that she loves him. I don't know if you remember at the end of the first section. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mr. Ramsey was just like, all he wanted was to hear her say, I love you, and she wouldn't do it. She kind of smiled. He realized that she did love him, but like she kind of put that as a victory on her part. <laughs> yeah, but she feels a pride that she communicated that love through telling him that he was right about his prediction that it would be too wet to go to the lighthouse. And it was what had been pissing her off all day, right? You know, that she had dashed the dreams of a family vacation to the lighthouse. But then she gave into it at the end because he'd come around at dinner and praised everybody and in his own way praised her and the, the big stew that she had made for three days, you know, and it was a successful night. And she gave into him without giving into it. Yeah, I love the way that she just revels in ambivalence. It's just, it's almost like you took one of these Victorian novelist and just shattered them into a million fragments and then put it all back together i mean it, it's the way that she shifts between perspective and perception and, and just like jumping to from one character's inner thoughts to another character you know right in the middle of a passage and it, it really is a fantastic way i think of capturing how we're all kind of mysterious to ourselves and we're all this multiplicity of uh subjectivities and and i, I Wanted to ask any of you guys who had read Ulysses too, like, I mean, for me, it was a totally different experience reading her stream of consciousness style than his, and it seemed like it was much more of a chore. 
with him and for her, it was just a pleasure for me. I totally agree. <laughs> I don't, I, I mean, I found reading her like oxygen. And when I was reading Ulysses, as much as I loved Ulysses, I mean, I didn't get that sense of oxygen. I really didn't get that. I think that, well, okay, just to say like a little defensive Ulysses, this, I think that the idea was to make it much more sort of un, the unmediated thoughts, which necessarily makes it a chore because you don't know, you're trying to figure out all the sort of private associations of what all these thoughts are. Whereas I feel like Wolf is kind of trying to do more of a, a paraphrase of to some extent. Um, trying to make it a little bit more understandable. And I think that she, one big difference to me between the styles is that she much more readily jumps from one stream of consciousness to another, right? From one person to another. And yeah. if it was just, if it was the Joyce thing where you're basically in someone's head for a whole chapter or at least a good chunk of the chapter, you just couldn't do that. If you had Joyce's really close-up view of the mind and you tried to jump from person to person, it would just look like garbage, right? <laughs> yeah. So he I was think, on the verge of being that already even within one mind. Yeah. Because right? he included everything. I mean, yeah. he wouldn't. You wouldn't leave anything out. And she sticks to, she sticks to certain, she has a subject matter that she's trying to pay attention to. Very vivid and very almost encyclopedic as regards these family relationships. But she doesn't go too far outside of that. She's not going to talk about who picked their nose like James Joyce would. My question is, were they supposed to or did they? I haven't looked into the history. Did they go back and edit? Oh, yeah, they definitely went back and edited it. I mean, did, did Joyce? I just know there's a ton of versions of Ulysses, so I, I'm assuming that's been edited, but uh, I don't know about Virginia Woolf. Really? I didn't know that. Wow. I don't know. I haven't looked into the history of that, but it's... It... Yeah, I, I definitely think that it definitely requires a lot of artifice to get the appearance of just natural thoughts or natural... Well, yes, I, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I'm only, I'm only saying this because when I was reading this, I was thinking about my own experience when I'm writing, and I, I feel like the best writing happens when completely open, it's open, and it's not easy to get there, okay? Yeah. But, you know, completely open, open, and tied in with character that you're writing about or from or who, and the best stuff that I've found comes up in those, comes out in those moments, and when I read this book, she must have been open the whole time, because... Yeah. Just happened so many moments so beautifully and so easily. Whereas Joyce, who did some phenomenally fascinating things, it just didn't. It wasn't as easy. And again, this all goes back to my wondering: Do certain artists the value of work art for the reader or the or the viewer to experience? You guys mentioned this at the beginning, but Virginia Woolf. I know, I forget where I read this, but she suffered from mental health problems. I don't know what I read about her, but every time she was working on a book, she was, you know, extremely happy and fruitful and productive in her work, and she'd go into a depression whenever she could. And obviously, eventually, she committed suicide, so. Interesting to me how many great artists or writers are like that, or not even necessarily, you know, creators, but, or people who are amazing politicians. It seems like there, there are these, this type of person who has, a project that they are just so deeply involved in and when they are everything to them, but then they fall into this, you know, kind of just emptiness in between things. That makes sense. At the end of the book, what is fascinating where they were saying how it's ended or they're there, they got there, it's over. You know, that concept that came up at the end? Oh, that you mean by not? Well, they arrived. 
they arrived at the at the lighthouse. Well, I mean, it was interesting you said earlier the theory of time because what we've been talking about in this mental life is how time is stretched out. So that third last section, you know, you have Lily Briscoe, you know, painting, and she remembers all of a sudden that that she had a thought at the dinner table that night before they were going to the lighthouse or not, and it was about a painting, and then she brought it forth, but into her mind again and wanted to paint it, but then she couldn't because Mr. Ramsey was there. And then they had that, that moment we talked about earlier. And then he left and then she imagined him going over there and landing, but then also finished her painting. And it seemed as if something that was put off on the side was just gone parallel. And in that parallel life, Andrew died and Prue died and lots of things happened. But then there was something that did close off. There was some kind of totality or ending. And I think also for Mr. Ramsey and also the children, which is why it was so hard for them to go because they wanted to go then, you know, when their father didn't. And now their father just wanted to go. And like, it was an honor, homage to Miss Ramsey. And it's fascinating what, how, why it took them that long. Yeah, you're, um, yeah, you get frustrated with them, right? Like, why in the world be that way? Yeah, I mean, and I mean, I know that a lot had happened in the last 10 years, but I mean, let's say you could have gone to the lighthouse the year after your wife had died. I mean, I'm just wondering why it took him so long. Plus, as I recall, when they were discussing the, the, the boat that they're all on, Cam and James and Mr. Ramsey and these other two, right? I think so. One was rowing also. Right. And, and they talk about how during most of the ride, Mr. Ramsey is slow. He's reading a book. Well, he goes to the, he goes to read a book at one point. I don't know if he's stuck in it at all times. Like he's very focused on getting there and is nervous until he feels the wind take and get in the sails and then they start going kind of relaxes. And I think he tries to reach out to Cam and she and her brother have this pact with each other that they're going to resist tyranny and the tyranny of their father being like his pessimism and, you know, what they don't want to try and recreate now, though they wanted years ago. And so they had this little compact and she kind of snubs him and then he goes into his book. And then whenever he does that, it's so solitary that Cam feels empathy for him like Lily Briscoe did about the boots and, you know, finding something about this man to, you know, uh, latch onto. And then all of a sudden she feels like maybe she betrayed him a little bit, uh, her brother, or she was tested and not hating her father, you know, um, and resisting him at this point. Yeah, I think uh, what struck me in that, uh, in the boat, as they're, you know, traveling across the sea to the, to the lighthouse was that was just not only, you know, when I was reading about Cam and James and how angry they, they were with their father, I mean, they just wanted to stick a knife in him, right? They want to just kill him, right? And not only did it strike me, Mr. Ramsey's behavior on this, on this boat just seemed so panicked in a way, internally panicked. But the thing that was fascinating um, that they kept saying, there was this line that that, that saying throughout the whole time in the book about how we're all alone, right? We're all alone. Remember that? It was. It had to do with you're always all alone. We perish alone. Remember that line? Right. I I remember that line. I forget what it is exactly. It's like is that a line from poetry or something? I don't know, but the thing is that it, it appears a number of times. What struck me is that she repeated it a number of times. I know uh, they, they have the uh, Charge of Life Brigade by Tennyson thrown throughout the whole book. Maybe. Oh, that's right. That loneliness, which was for both of them the truth about things. 
it was one, maybe it was that one line there, but it kept being repeated, and I don't know if she said it at the very end. Yeah, I mean, the, the way all of them were behaving on the boat towards, which was really the final journey of the book, you know, on, on the boat towards going to the lighthouse. It's the final journey of the boat, because when they arrive at the lighthouse, it's over was that he stood there as if he were spreading his hands over all the weakness and suffering of mankind. She thought he was surveying tolerantly and compassionately their final destiny. This is on the last page. Now he crossed the occasion, she thought, when his hand slowly fell, as if she had seen him let fall from his great height a wreath of violets and asphodels, which fluttering slowly lay at length upon the earth. I think there's a theme of, like, the, the lighthouse is in a way, like, the desire that uh, Mr. Uh, Ramsey has in the book. And I think that theme spreads out over when you reach your desire, it sort of kills it, it ends it. I think there's that passage you just said with the lighthouse, but also the whole, at the beginning of the book, the marriage proposal between, um, I forget what the characters are called, but I think when you go into the, uh, the guy's head, it says it was the most frightening moment of his life, and he like went threw up after he <laughs> asked the, the woman to marry right. him. Wait, you're, so you're saying that achieve, uh, obtaining what you've always desired kills, kills it? Yeah, effectively kills it. Kills so. your desire. Well, obviously because you've attained it. You know, I mean, kind of, it's like I always say, why is the thing I've always been looking for the last thing I find? You've always attained it. I mean, when you attain your desire, yes, it kills the desire because you've attained it. Yeah, and, I think, and the fact that, that you know that doesn't help, doesn't help you um, not reach after it anyways because, you know, they go to Lighthouse anyways. <laughs> the fact that you know reaching your desire kills it. I wonder if that's why Mr. Ramsey didn't want to go there in the first place, that it would kill some some kind of energy. I don't know, but I, I think that in connection with this, I think it's important that the last lines in the novel are i mean the 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 thought about it that's from lily right that's like yeah. lily's perspective am i right am i wrong you're right and and she's saying i had my vision i mean she's mainly referring the painting right and i think that i mean I, it's it's kind of like she's trying to in the painting to my mind she's like trying to be honest i hate to say this but i don't I'm not even what painting is of but um but i clearly get the sense that in the painting she's trying to kind of capture the entirety of the kind of scene in the entirety of the last 10 years right i mean maybe not to go too far off but Maybe he didn't want to go to the lighthouse in the beginning because that's a way of stopping time. But then time continued, and in the course of time, three people died. Three people in his family and his wife died. So, and then the thing about a painting, in a way, it captures the moment. Well, the lighthouse is like the focal point, right? And everybody's perspectives kind of center on it, but they're all different because they're all coming from different places. Mr. Ramsey, he's... And this kind of goes back to what you were talking about, about his philosophy, Laura, I think. Like, he has this metaphysical idea of, like, this barrier between what is and what is perceived, right? So maybe that's related to his feeling that well, they won't actually be able to reach the lighthouse. It's beyond them somehow. And he's pessimistic. And he, he seems like um, it's an interesting picture of the philosopher to me. Because of all of them, he seems the most detached, you know, the most walled off and kind of unaware of self. And, you know, his way of living life is so sterilized and so just kind of, uh, you know, he 
the pic the picture of Mrs. Ramsey that you get is so alive and so engaged um, as compared to him. He's got his nose in books. He's not observant of his children. He's going off at the cuff all of all the time. Never never really in control or too aware of himself. <laughs> but isn't that perception of the the philosopher throughout history really? Yeah. I'm not saying it's correct, but I'm just saying, isn't that, particularly at that time, when Wolf was writing? He was a very inward character versus the sort of outward character of Miss Ramsey. I, I think that, well, one thing I think it's important to keep in mind with him is Wolf's theory, which I think she put forth in a room of one's own, that one of the, her big kind of theory of sexism was that men demanded women to kind of reflect them, to be their peers, to constantly kind of puff them up, you know, give them their sympathy. And there's like a sense of trying to kind of appropriate the psychological energy of, of one sex, the other sex. And I think that in The Father, you kind of, I feel like I'm seeing a lot of that in The Father. Like, um, and, you know, Mrs. Ramsey, to some extent, kind of goes along with him. And I feel like the reason that he's, constantly pointing out that they won't be able to go to the lake house is just to kind of get attention like i'm the smart guy who you know recognizes reality i'm not like you silly women or something like that right and right. and I, I don't know i mean it's because it's part of his shtick of i'm important god damn it <laughs> maybe that's why she didn't say i love you that's true, and I think you already mentioned uh, Lily Briscoe has the same thing as far as, like, when she was sitting at the dinner table, someone mentioned that she's going to, you know, she's going to make Tansley feel good because that she was told that's what women are out to do, right? They're out to make uh, men feel comfortable. Yeah, and tying this into the larger themes of the book, I feel like there's also a connection trying to escape their own feelings of permanence and insignificant, like, strategy for dealing with that. Yeah, there was a section... Um in the window where she's sitting and taking up her stocking at uh, bedtime, I suppose, or this is before they're finally in bed. She says that she, you know, she has this delicious fecundity, this fountain and spray of life. Then the fatal sterility of the male plunged itself like a beak of brass, barren and bare. He wanted sympathy. He was a failure, he said. Miss Ramsey flashed her needles. Mr. Ramsey repeated, never taking his eyes from her face, that he was a failure. She blew the words back at him. Charles Townsley, you know, she said, but he must have more than that. It was sympathy he wanted to be assured of his genius, first of all, and then to be taken within the circle of life, warmed and soothed, to have his senses restored to him, his barrenness made fertile, and all the rooms of the house made full of life. The great passage. Yeah. They, they make him almost seem to be a comic character in how much he needs that sympathy, how much he needs to hear about how great he is. But I think it's, uh, I think she does a very good job in recognizing that trait. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the sense that it is an obvious trait when people have that need to always hear about how they're important and great and good. Well, I, there's one more of that. Uh, this is really wears down on Miss Ramsey, right? So all this melancholy stuff. She has this short thought. She heard him say the most melancholy things but she noticed that directly he had said them he always seemed more cheerful than usual. All this phrase-making was a game, she thought, for if she had said half what he said, she would have blown her brains out by now. This is on page 77 in The Window. It is in the XII or 12, that section, about three pages in, and she's responding to whenever he sighed, poor little place, thinking about, you know, the island. and. I think that really sets up the 
dynamic of their relationship because of how much she was putting into it. She feels almost exhausted. But then going back to the dinner table, she prepares this huge to-do, a feat for the household and extended friends. And he praises her and uh, she feels, you know, swollen up with pride again. So there is a back and forth and it's, you know, not absolutely one way, though I think all these things are kind of contained in a, you know, ultimately sadness. I mean, how sad it must, you know, it was for that guy at the end to just be going across, you know, towards the lighthouse and at the very end. Yeah, there's this sense in which, or this, and maybe it goes back to um theme of us all being private in some way or being alone in some way and never really being able to communicate. I, I had another passage from 91, which I think is an inner monologue from Mrs. Ramsey, um, says, uh, life, she thought, but she did not finish her thought. She took a look at life, for she had a clear sense of it there, something real, something private which she shared neither with her children nor with her husband. The sort of transaction went on in which she was on one side and life was on another, and she was always trying to get the better of it as it was of her. And sometimes they parlayed when she sat alone. There were, she remembered, great reconciliation scenes, but for the most part, oddly enough, she must admit that she felt this thing that she called life terrible, hostile, and quick to pounce on you if you gave it a chance. And she goes on like that, but I just I thought that was interesting. Interesting in uh, in conjunction to what you were saying. Yeah, there's there's an interesting bit too. Um, just after that part that I quoted last, um, after she talks about the phrase making and how it annoys her, she says, "And what was he groaning about? Half laughing, half complaining, for she guessed what he was thinking. He would have written better books if he had not married." And now that is a deep thing to struggle with as a wife, to see this intellectual. You can see the resentment of that intellectual life, thinking that he would rather throw himself completely in there. That's her thinking about Mr. Ramsey. It's her perception. Yes, uh, she guessed what he was thinking, or she imagines it, that he could have written better books if he had not married. That's an interesting part to me of just what her character is, though, because that just incredibly incisive perceptive um, talent that she has is so much a part of her and it's it's lacking in him in some ways i mean he may be intellectually brilliant um but he doesn't have um he definitely doesn't have this awareness this just incredibly perceptive awareness of, of what's going on around him and for her it's kind of a blessing and a curse right i mean she's got she understands you know what people are looking for or what maybe will make them happy even when they don't and she tries to kind of arrange that but she's also you know keenly aware you know it, it makes her experience more pain than she otherwise would also because you know she's aware of what's going to happen with her children and she feels so much for them and you know they're their pain is going to be her pain. and and Yeah, I want to pick up on that right there. She, This is just a little bit later I was looking after you asked. He sometimes seemed different from other people, born blind, deaf, and dumb to the ordinary things, but to the extraordinary things with an eye like an eagle's. His understanding often astonished her. But did he notice the flowers? No. Did he notice the view? No. Did he even notice his own daughter's beauty or whether there was pudding on his plate or roast beef? He would sit at the table with them like a person in a dream. And so at what cost, right, to be that great genius? And surely that's what he struggles with going back earlier. You know, he gets worn out and then needs to be brought into the fold and to be given love and sympathy. And then, you know, it's such a strain. And, you know, then going all the way at the very end to Lily again and getting the sympathy from her. And yet it's interesting that 
he can connect through. They they don't connect eye to eye though. It's through she appreciates his boots or his eye for craftsmanship or something like you know uh, Miss Ramsey appreciates his intellect and maybe it's sway over other people. Maybe that's what's going on is that she. I don't understand that other people respect him and that's a measure. Yeah, it's like the whole scene um, or the whole group of people is like this one kind of mechanism, right? And everyone has a role that's just kind of fallen on them or that they've picked up or something like that. And for they, they're all dependent upon each other to function in their respective ways that they do. You know, he needs that sympathy. She needs these people to kind of... Uh, you know, orchestrate and to care about, you know, and it, I don't know, it's it's interesting the way she puts it all together so that it's dependent upon itself. I don't know, I want to think, I want to think about what Virginia Woolf was trying to do. I mean, the, aside from the fact that the writing is really brilliant, I mean, I know that, and I've read about this, that there are certain things like Lily Briscoe, in many ways, she, excuse me, based her on her sister, because her sister was a painter. But she also was looking at the creative process a lot when she was discussing Lily Briscoe's painting and what was going on in terms of the process and how it, it reflects what, what an artist goes through, a writer, painter, whatever. But um, I'm just wondering if we look at this in the big picture, what we see, what we think she was trying, what she was experiencing and, try, and trying to say on a sort of larger philosophical sense. If I look at this whole thing, I get a real, like, sort of very melancholy quality from it, very reflective, very deep, and I'm trying to figure out what, what, was, what was she trying to do? What was she trying to say? Well, I mean, there is, there's another passage that is just about an idea, and I think that she says something about life, um, at, and it's kind of hopeful, uh, which I didn't expect, but, you know, she talks about the minds of men, and, oh yes, it was impossible to resist the strange intimation which every gull, flower, tree, man and woman, and the white earth itself seemed to declare, that good triumphs, happiness prevails, order rules or to resist the extraordinary stimulus to range hither and thither in search of some absolute good, some crystal of intensity, remote from the known pleasures and familiar virtues, something alien to the processes of domestic life, single, hard, bright, like a diamond in the sand, which would render the possessor secure. And she goes on right there to you know, to make a, more statements, and that's where you find Prue Ramsey died right after that. So, I mean, she hits you with these brilliant, encounters of her of her mind that are that are bright and amazing but then a little bit later you get the other end of that so what's that saying it's all ephemeral i mean i didn't expect the second and third act to fly through like it did i mean i mean you might get those more positive moments but they're few and far between yeah absolutely yeah here's one what is the meaning of life that was all the great revelation had never come. The great revelation perhaps never does come or did come. Right. And she says, instead, there's just daily miracles and illumination. Right, that one. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, so it's like, I think she's like trying to kind of keep the aesthetic uh, approach to life, but at the same time, kind of like deflating it and really showing what it's up against and having more realistic view of it. Maybe that's kind of like what the underlying... Kind of yeah, well, that you can ha you can take the note that it ends on too to that effect, right? I mean, Lily Briscoe is talking about her painting. You know, she's questioning for the umpteenth time. You know, is it going to be hung in attics or stuff under beds or whatever? And she says, you know, 
It would be hung in attics, she thought. It would be destroyed. But what did that matter? She asked herself, taking up her brush again. She looked at the steps. They were empty. She looked at her canvas. It was blurred. With a sudden intensity, as if she saw it clear for a second, she drew a line there in the center. It was done. It was finished. Yes, she thought, laying down her brush in extreme fatigue. I have had my vision. So, yeah, I think that's exactly what you were saying, Dan. Like, I mean, that's, you know, that moment of um, coordination or unification where you feel like uh, your perception or your orientation toward the world has lined up and there's a sense of cohesion or the sense of uh, belonging or something like that is maybe the best we can get. But I don't know. I mean, maybe I think there is that. I don't know if you can distinguish that as being an ultimate prescription um, insofar as it stands out above all of the other kind of more melancholy passages in the novel that Laura was talking about. But if in the end the book is just more descriptive than prescriptive, I mean, I still think that's enough or maybe that's all you can ask. I don't know. I mean, she <laughs> she was a pretty melancholy person, like like you said. So maybe you know she doesn't necessarily mean to offer us uh, anything. Beyond well, I mean, I'm not saying you know you can say that about anybody, any artist, any writer. It's not like they're necessarily offering us any knowledge. The knowledge that we what we get from any given piece of work is really what we do on our own. You know, our own perception, our own analysis, our own knowledge that we take. Um, and I'm not saying that she necessarily is. I, I just was curious what each of us think about what she was doing or what she is doing with this piece. And I personally think that she's saying that, that you can't know what the meaning of life is. You know, that's my sense. You can't know. It's like, like if you, that, look at that last line. I have had my vision. What is a vision? A vision is something that comes out of your own personal perception. It's not like something that you and I can say on a scientific basis is an objective reality or an objective state. Something that comes out of your own perception, your own artistic perception, your your own creation. These redeeming moments are kind of unavoidably subjective. Right. There is no objective answer. That's why it's a vision. I think there's a huge power to the subjective that's often dashed because of um, its, in, its ineffability um, to right. be communicated, except that we can touch on it through media of art, say, like a novel or literature that somehow can get into your mind's eye view. Through my own for a little bit, it's certainly not, because there's no objective thing for me to jump into. If I were in her mind, I just would be her through and through. There wouldn't be any room left for me. You know, but whatever I can take from this book is certainly a, you know, a power. And I, what was really amazing to me was that ramp up through the end to see the closing down of this family story that, you know, just set up to see so perfectly in that one day. And then you get this almost time lapse, you know, just fast, 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 plant eye view of time and then interjections of biological death of a child and then someone else or what someone else did. But then it's just more and more and more and more and more time. And then just time passes and then you're left and changed at the end. Is it my Kindle version or is it in, in paper version, if any of you reading paper version, that those statements of when Prue died and when Andrew died are in brackets? Yeah, I think might as well. That really struck me too. Why are what essentially is like, okay, you can't say that the plot is action in a lot of playing of time, but that there's no, can't say this happened and this, I mean, it's, it's very weird. And I was thinking when I saw those things that were in brackets, it's like the action 
these active occurrences are like, I don't know, they, they either don't matter or they're afterthoughts. Because why are they in brackets? It's almost like it's an aside, you know, by the way, you by, know. By the way, the mother died. The main character of the first half of this <laughs> by the way, she's dead. Yeah, I was just looking at that. Uh, I, I, I'll read it. It said, this is going through time quickly, and then, Almost it would appear that it is useless in such confusion to ask the knight those questions as to what and why and wherefore, which tempt the sleeper from his bed to seek an answer. Mr. Ramsay, stumbling out along the passage one dark morning, stretched out his arms, but Miss Ramsay, having died rather suddenly the night before, his arms, though stretched out, remained empty. And the other thing about those that, I mean, I don't have a specific example at hand, but like they seemed like they were always just in juxtaposition to some really subjective passage so that like the maximum impact of like being hit with that smack back to reality was just really severe. I mean, it really kind of was a just breakneck kind of juxtaposition there for me at least. Well, and the time passes section for me was the most, for lack of a better word, philosophical or or just deep, like true, kind of like those incandescent statements that are just loaded and that you have to go back and read a couple of times and even so leave you kind of wondering at the deeper meaning. It's There there were several, several of those in the time passages section. And I think that it was, though well observed the other ones were and how amazing the characters flowed between each other, once it got out of time and started moving in this other space, it was very, very interesting to see her thoughts take form. And then jumping back, it was she was just critically sharp and had something nailed that described a biological instance of time or what it felt like to be someone. And then went right back out to this some other view. I think we also have to keep in mind the background of World War One during that entire passage. I mean, not only Andrew dying with uh, the shell blown up with 20 other men, but I think the whole description of you know, nature taking over and being indifferent to the suffering of man. It's, you know, really think about the the bloody trenches and battlefields of World War One and how, you know, afterwards poppies just grow. <laughs> Which I think they actually specifically mentioned. What you guys think about Mr. Ramsey's character in the sense of needing to be great. I don't know how you as a person sort of push yourself to be better and then not go to that extreme sense that he did and, you know, juxtapose yourself between the alphabet or always need sympathy or always wanting to hear that you're you're good. <laughs> is that like the eventual outcome of someone who wants to push themselves to be great? Is is it the the recognition among others that makes him a dick or <laughs> <laughs> Well I think that's an interesting question because there's always that tension I think in anything that you do as to why you're doing it, you know, the emotional rewards that we get from achieving our goals, um, are they the ends themselves or is the actual repercussions of our actions or the work that we do? Is that objectively, you know, what, what we're trying to get? I think it's really more difficult than you would think to separate the two from each other. Because how do you recognize the one without the other? You know, I mean, I, I, that's part of our barometer for feeling that we are great is having that reflection in others. Like uh, one of you guys was talking about the women being for the men. You know, it's like we seek that mirror, you know, in others. Yeah, but that's that's just a, a recipe for disaster. <laughs> it, is, it is. because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'll never, you'll never be happy with that. And, and that's, I mean, I don't know if that's what was happening with Mr. Ramsey. Um, I, it's hard to tell, probably. It's an interesting thing that you say it's a record for disaster because there's that funny, not 
funny, tragic line from the Charges of Light Brigade. And basically, it's like, I don't know the background. It's like English soldiers. It was hopeless. Right. Charged ahead anyway. And um, Tennyson, poem celebrating them is basically saying, yeah, weren't they great? Everyone, say they're so great. Right? Right. And I feel like he, I, like that poem is stuck in his head in, in a weird way because he's got these thoughts about and it's kind of like a jingle that he can't get out of his head or something like that. And the novel is trying to recommend the Lily Brasco thing at the end, her thought at the end that, you know, screw it. If this thing gets rolled up and stuck in an attic somewhere, you know, I... Yeah, in other words, if the mirror breaks, it doesn't matter. If the mirror is broken, it doesn't matter. Yeah. That's... And I mean... Go ahead. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because, you know, there's that... I, there's an important line for me with Mrs. Ramsey at one point. I forget what it is exactly, but thinking to herself about how she herself, like people will think that I uh, pump them up or something like that, or I forget what it is exactly. But like, I feel like it's interesting. The novel is kind of like pointing out the ways that people try to, people use other people to kind of pump themselves up, right? And your, your, your statement about the mirror is broken. I mean, I feel like once you realize this sort of game of, of popping people up and people kind of agreeing to pop other people up and stuff like that, like you realize that this just can't possibly work as a criterion for whether you're doing good work or not. Yeah, that was it. That was, uh, I think Paul was saying that, uh, when he was reflecting on the whole marriage proposal and he's saying, you know, he's thinking and saying, like, damn, like, why did I do that? Like, why did I let this Ramsey puff me up and talk me? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> But you can't ever totally get rid of it either, though, can you? I mean, I, I remember there was like a, ma- a line, I think, from the map in the territory where he's talking about like eventually every artist has to put their stuff out there in order to know that it's real. Like, <laughs> yeah, eventually, you know, you want to communicate. Otherwise, it's just total subjectivity. You need some kind of a reflection um, yeah, but, back to, yeah, to know that it's not total solipsism. If the reflection is negative, that's what doesn't matter, in other words. Yes, of course you want to communicate and you want to get the artwork out there. But if someone comes back and says, well, it sucks, and then you're broken, you're destroyed, you kill yourself, whatever it is, and that's where the mirror falls apart. It really should not be part of it at that point. I've got that passage, I think, that um, kind of, well, it said, did nature supplement what man advanced? Did she complete what he began? With equal complacence, she saw his misery, his meanness, and his torture. That dream of sharing, completing, of finding in solitude on the beach an answer was then but a reflection in a mirror. And the mirror itself was but the surface glassiness which forms in quiescence when the nobler powers sleep beneath. Impatient, despairing, yet loath to go, for beauty offers her lures, has her consolations. To pace the beach was impossible. Contemplation was unendurable. The mirror was broken. Great line, great passage. And then just one more that's interesting. In brackets, right after that, Mr. Carmichael brought out a volume of poems that spring, which had an unexpected success. The war, people said, had revived their interest in poetry. You know, one thing I wanted to ask is, why do you think whenever Mrs. Ramsey was described or mentioned by someone, there was always that thing about her being incredibly beautiful. Mm, yes. I, I yeah. just wonder. I wonder why. Was that 
was that smirking at all? I mean, it, because, I mean, Wolf is very aware of, like, you know, sexist perceptions of women and things like that. And I wondered if that was kind of a something that she was saying to um, to make clear the way that a superficial view of Mrs. Ramsey might disguise um, the deeper aspects of her personhood. Or beauty doesn't matter. Mm. I mean, I, I wonder why, I mean, why did it have to, I mean, it was always there. Wherever you, you know, it was always there. This thing about, it wasn't this just that she was beautiful, that she was shockingly beautiful. That is another thing that they were saying, that it was said. And I was like, it was always there. And I kept thinking, why does she keep, you know, saying this about this woman? This woman who was really fascinating and brilliant and, and you know, deep and reflective. And I'm just, and you know, just really, I was just shocked. I was just interested about that. I know the historical note that her old mother was quite a, a beautiful woman. That deeply affected her. Oh, really? Yeah. And I know... Virginia Woolf had her own problems. I know she was in love with a person who ultimately rejected her, and I think she reflectively thought that it was because she wasn't beautiful enough. And Virginia Woolf was beautiful. I mean, I've seen some beautiful pictures of her. Yeah, the portraits. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I'm just I'm just fascinated by why, you know, that, you know, she discusses Mrs. Ramsey, uh, where she's incredibly, you know, as I say, reflective and saying fascinating things and amazing observations. But then she always, you know, describes her as this incredibly beautiful woman. I wonder if she implying that later on there's this little bit, and I think it's unrelated, but it says uh, to marvel how beauty outside reflected beauty within. And I don't take that to mean that beautiful people are good people. I think that to mean that people saw within her, they could see like how worn she looked at different times, right? Like there was definitely an up and down to this. And then there was a moment where she was in sync with everybody, things were going well, and then it was like peak radiance and everybody knew it. And I feel like what people are calling beauty or what they're attracted to with is within her, but represented externally through their experience of her. And then that reflection back and forth is, wow, what a beautiful woman. Now that, I mean, that doesn't seem like that would hold up if she was, you know, the same way, but uh, disfigured. And so, I guess, classically objective, like ugly, you know, but like her beauty, I think, is related to how much of a um, wonderful person she is. But I guess it is objective beauty, but there's something about it being a subjective beauty as well. Yeah, it reflected like her warmth. I, I know there's a, a passage at the beginning when Tansley, I think she asked if Tansley wanted to accompany her to town. And Tansy, I think, also called the atheist. He said, like, this is the first time that he was accompanying a beautiful woman into town. And when you think about it, like, she must have been 20 years, 20 or 30 years older than this 20 year old. Why does that always have to be what is said about a woman? Is that something that she was remarking on us in a backhanded way? Why does it always have to be the cat, you know, did, did they say, I don't remember them saying anything about little Briscoe. About her, about her being beautiful. The only place I see that is her, is in Mrs. Ramsey. I think, I think she does, Miss Ramsey herself reflects on how she is perceived as a beautiful woman. I know at one point in the book she says that she can't help the fact that she is beautiful or so, and she thinks that she gets resentment for that fact about herself. But I don't know if Virginia Woolf just puts that in as a, you know, as a comment on how your relationships and the way you act in the world do 
sort of reflect how you just physically appear and there's no escaping that. Yeah. And that her as a beautiful woman just has a different connection to the world than, you know, Lily Briscoe, who doesn't have that objective fact about her. Like whether it's, you know, right or wrong or, or backhanded, it, it's there one way or the other, you know, I mean, it does affect things and it's how people perceive her and it's, it's part of the equation. There's an interesting bit. Uh, it's talking about this very thing. It says, um, but was it nothing but looks? What was there behind it? Her beauty and splendor. And then they talk a little bit about her chief virtues. And it's this, she was silent always. She knew without having learned her simplicity fathomed what clever people falsified her singleness of mind made her drop plumb like a stone, a light exact as a bird, gave her naturally the swoop and fall of the spirit upon truth, which delighted, ease, sustained, falsely perhaps. There's a dash and it's falsely perhaps. Yeah, I, th I think it's connected to the fact that she's really good at playing the traditional femininity game, right? Like, I feel like Wolf has a lot of reservations. I feel like Wolf really respects the fact that she is awesome at playing the feminine virtues, right? And Wolf wants to say, oh, there's something to that. You know, she's like this kind of great arranger of moments and people. But, right. you know, at the same time, and I feel like maybe people thinking that she's beautiful kind of part of that, the fact that she's really great at playing the traditional feminine virtues. But I also think that Wolf kind of saying that someone like Lily Brasco I don't know. I mean, there's a limitation to that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of a certain amount of silly thought connected with that sort of thing. All the weird thoughts that Mrs. Ramsey has about men, like, you know, being like the masters of finance and the governors of India and blah, blah. There's that funny passage. <laughs> right. Mr. Ramsey is described as the great intellectual and Mrs. Ramsey is described as the great beauty. Well, there's one thing that Mr. Banks says in his mind. Um, he says that if it was her beauty merely that one thought of, one must remember the quivering thing, the living thing, and work it into the picture. Or if one thought of her simply as a woman, one must endow her with some freak of idiosyncrasy. She did not like admiration or suppose some lament desire to doff her royalty. Uh, anyway, beauty bored her and all that men say of beauty. And she wanted only to be like other people insignificant. That he did not know he must go to his work. And so that's like a thought that's going on about this. Like, so even he's considering, you know, what's going on. Is it just beauty or is there something underneath it? And I think that's interesting, that living thing behind the beauty and her disregard for it sets it apart. It's a, almost an incidental thing or a curse. And it does seem, yeah, it, it seems to bother her as well. And I, I think the fact that she's beautiful lends her like the authority as far as uh, allowing her to do what she does or you know match be a matchmaker be a connector and tell Paul to or get Paul to to marry um, or propose to the woman and I know like I mean I, I, I've read recently some books about how humans just confuse good-looking people with moral people or just better people it's just a fact about human nature is that we can't differentiate people's looks with, you know, how moral or good they actually are. People look at that <laughs> fact about her and and defer to her for that advice just because of that. And she struggles with that, hoping that it's not that. It's it's her being this more full real person. Don't you think that, like, that's got to be a huge factor in how people 
engage with each other. I think about that all the time. Like, <laughs> like maybe like stupid people and like just really unattractive people are like discriminated against on par with like anything we would think about in terms of minorities or something. But you could never like represent that or like you know say well we need rights. Uh, yeah, ugly, ugly people are not in the constitution. <laughs> right, exactly. And who would stand up and, and say like I need my affirmative action as an ugly person? Right? Yeah. I mean, I. I, I mean, but you know from high school, like, that people are totally discriminated against yeah, for totally that very reason. And I think you're right. I think it lasts. I think that goes on the workplace. Absolutely. Absolutely. I thought about that as well. Like, how do you how do you help stupid people? Why are you just allowed to discriminate against people that, you know, would lose all their money, life savings on, you know, blackjack or something? Like, do they not deserve pity rather than... <laughs> right. Right. Because you want to say, like, you know, okay, no, we just need to like reconsider and like take people's talents, you know, as they are and they're in different areas and maybe somebody's not good at this. But in re- real life, like that's never how it shakes out in actual social situations. Like people get a certain reputation and then they're regarded in a certain way and they get, you know, downcast for that. And it just, you know, it's almost kind of cruelly Darwinian in that way. Yeah, because then you get something like, lottery making a poor tax, you know, and people, you know, having their impulses played against them, you know, to gain someone else's, you know, purchasing power or... Back to Virginia Woolf, which is that, because I'm always, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt, and I'm wondering if, you know, if she was a victim of this societal structure where, you know, women are beautiful and men are smart, or um, if she was making a comment. I think it's both um, a victim or a she was playing a role in the structure, but as well as she could, and that proved her intelligence. And her being beautiful, you know, maybe was attributed to just her being beautiful. Maybe she just happened to both be beautiful and a good person, you know? It happens. <laughs> <laughs> There's that weird comment in um, Mr. Ramsey's head somewhere in the window where um, it's, he says that the the lift man will always need someone to be the lift man or something like that, right? The guy who, like, does the elevator. Oh, yes. Yeah, talking um, about the structure of civilization. Yeah, and that, that thought made him uncomfortable. And then, you know, there's a couple of servants here and there. They're not really seen that much. You never really see one in any tale is when, uh, in time passes, when the they're trying to, they're failing. <laughs> The servants are failing to keep up the house, and then later on, a little bit weird or a little bit awkward. I don't really know what Wolf's own thoughts on, um, you know, all the kind of questions of socialism were at the time. But, I mean, it was definitely in the air. I mean, Russell had just come out with Pathways to Freedom, I think the book is. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know. I just, it strikes me as being somewhere in the background, but not really ever merging as distinct themes or a distinct concern of the book. I don't know. I don't know if anyone else had any thoughts about that or a lot. Yeah, she did make the servants just appear in a really, really, really simple, very cool working class upbringing versus Virginia Woolf's, you know, minor aristocracy or wherever she actually came from. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to beat her up too much for it, but um, I'm not, like, going to deport this book to Siberia or whatever, but... um, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it, it just, it, it struck, it struck me in an odd way. I don't know. They seem, they seem, yeah, they seem like the least, the most charactered people in the book, I would say. I mean, you never, I mean, you barely ever jump into their minds, right? Like, that's yeah. the thing. 
I guess the last thought that I had was just I was impressed with the inner life that that she illustrated, and Miss Ramsey's was really interesting, but Lily's was also. And there was a scene at the dinner table, the, the dinner table, where she wanted to go with Mr. Ramsey to uh, the lake, and he was like, or to the lighthouse, and she, and he was like, yeah. Uh, but the way he laughed and said it, you know, she she put herself out there, and then that expression said, "Go throw yourself off a cliff for all I care." And then the line was, uh, "He turned on her cheek the heat of love, its horror, its cruelty." It's unscrupulosity. And, um, that was just a powerful statement about love that if people, you know, think about like love being a nice, sweet thing, there's that. Um, and then also early, early on in the novel, Lily loves the Ramseys so much, Miss Ramsey specifically, but how she interacts with her children. And she's trying to paint and can't like at the end of the book where she's trying to paint and can't. And then she says, what if sometimes I just like want to throw myself at her knee and say, I love you to Miss Ramsey. But she said, no, I can't say that. Um, I'm in love with all this. And then she said, it's absurd. It's impossible. You just can't say things like that to people. And that struggle, I think, is really, um, I think that that gives power to break out of the stereotypes of, you know, class systems or just like the women and the men. I think she gives really good due to everybody's, uh, or not intelligence, their mental life, their wisdom. Yeah, and the intricacy with which all of that happens, you know, regarding, you, yeah, I, I feel you on that. You can't just stuff people in boxes and make stock characters out of them in the way that we tend to do as we go through life in order to just function and have, you know, things relegated to a background in order so that we can turn our attention to something else. But she really does an excellent job in this novel of giving every, every, person, you know, just this vivid inner life. And I, I was just super impressed with her observational power. This is like the most impressive book that we've read in quite a while for me, I think. It's uh, my first wolf. So. Uh, me too. And I totally agree. And, and I wanted to um, quote something that I think has, goes to what she was going through when she wrote this. Um, and I have no idea where it is in the book, <laughs> because as I say in the Kindle version, I just, you know, it's toward the end. It's all I know. And it's, it's, it has to do with um, Lily Briscoe's painting. And because, as I said, I read that um, I believe she based Lily Briscoe on her sister, who was a painter. And I also think that she, in her discussion of, the, of going through the um, process of creating a work of art, she, just, she writes about that uh, in terms of Lily Briscoe's work. Anyway, I wanted, I wanted to quote these uh, two passages real quick that I found um, about her painting. Um, always it was in her nature or in her sex, she did not know which, before she exchanged the fluidity of life for the concentration of painting, she had a few moments of nakedness when she seemed like an unborn soul, a soul reft of body, hesitating on some windy pinnacle and exposed without protection to all the blasts of doubt. Oh, yeah. Um, and then there was one other part that I thought is, I, I think, really captures what Virginia Woolf was going through when she wrote this. Then, as if some juice necessary for the lubrication of her faculties were spontaneously squirted, she began precariously dipping among the blues and umbers, moving her brush hither and thither. But it was now heavier and went slower, as if it as if it had fallen in with some rhythm which was dictated to her. She kept looking at the hedge, at the canvas. By what she saw, 
so that while her hand quivered with life, this rhythm was strong enough to bear her along with it on its current. Certainly she was losing consciousness of outer things. Oh. 